0: This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding.
1: One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process.
0: The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial.
1: As trial lawyers, we pick up and move
2: on and keep going.
0: You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case.
1: Whatever you think about, you create.
0: Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the
3: guts to try case after case after case.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
0: Today on Trial Law Nation, I'm here with my partner, Sonia Rodriguez, and we're going to talk, we're going to try not to just bitch and whine, we're going to talk about the surviving and trying to thrive when this darn pandemic keeps coming back keeps taking trial dates away from us uh, and makes us having to find ways other than just trial pressure uh, to get cases settled because they keep canceling trials in a lot of jurisdictions. Sonia, how are you doing today?
3: I'm great, Michael. It's good to see you.
0: It's good to see you too. And uh, for those of you listening, if I sound a little whiny or bitter, uh, I was supposed to be in trial in Charlotte, North Carolina on Monday. We're recording this on a Thursday and unfortunately, yesterday morning, we got an email from the court saying that uh trials canceled because of COVID. And, you know, I respect the courts. Uh, they need to do, you know, they're making hard decisions. They need to do what they have to do. But it is uh, disappointing that, you know, you do all the work to get ready. We had our hotels booked. We had practice. We had all our witnesses prepped, all our experts ready to go. And then, you know, just a few days before trial, they tell us we don't get to go. So it's... How do you handle that? So I handled to You too. That's happened to you too.
2: It has, and unfortunately, in the last you know year and a half, it's the new normal of being ready for trial and getting ready for trial, and um, you know having the rug pulled out from under you. And I think all the time about how blessed we are to be able to have the experts lined up, have everybody ready to go, have everybody paid in advance to get them here for trial. And it really is a blessing to be able to say we will live to fight another day if we are continued or if we must be continued. But I think all the time about these lawyers out there who, you know, have invested so much money and time and energy and effort into getting ready to go to trial, lined up all the experts, got the hotel rooms booked and then have that rug pulled out to uh, out from under them. And then they've got to re. Calibrates and figure out how the heck they're going to um, invest that money again to get ready for a second trial
3: series.
0: Yeah, it's tough, and and a lot of the money. I mean, an expert is going to charge you so much money to get up and ready uh, each time, and so it really does get to the point where you know, depending on the size of the case. Now, on a on a you know a death case, a spinal cord injury case, you can do that, but a lot of cases. You have If you have to pay experts to Europe two, three, or four times, the costs will, will diminish your client's recovery to the point that even if you win, it's not really a win for your client.
2: And I mean, I think that has a lot to do, do too, with the types of experts you hire. The real professionals know that this line of work is, you know, sometimes got... Shaky ground when it comes to trial settings, and they will reset and reschedule without charging you extra or you know it's part of the cost of doing business, but there are some experts who you know aren't as forgiving, and so it it's tough, and so I think that goes back to. You know, knowing who you're working with early on in the case and making sure you've got people who are professionals and know what they're doing and what this investment of time and energy involves uh, on their end, which means being ready to be flexible
3: if it has to.
0: Absolutely. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, we want to make money. We want to we want to do well and get big verdicts. But it's really about the client. If, If we don't get the client a better recovery from trial. Than they would have had they settled in their pocket. We're not just talking about the verdict, but what the client ends up with after everything else gets paid. And we've not done them a service.
3: Right.
2: I think the unfortunate thing that this um, pandemic has now created is a gigantic wrench in your damage model, in your settlement values on cases, because whereas before you could evaluate a case and the potential recovery to the client based on a, relatively firm trial setting. We all know that, you know, even in regular times, non-pandemic times, the the certainty of a trial date was never really that certain. But now the prospect of having to prepare multiple times for the trial setting is going to multiply the cost. And that's thrown a wrench in how you evaluate what the client is going to get in their pocket. And um, it, it really... Um, complicates things from the plaintiff's
0: perspective. Absolutely. I and mean, to some extent, the, the insurance companies are able to pay multiple times too, but they also are, are earning money on the investments for the money that they aren't paying us. Uh, right. And and then they also have the hope that, you know, they just keep it tough and expensive. We, we will settle for discount, which I know at our firm we're not doing, but it is, a, you know, it is a a temptation for people and I understand it too. I mean, if you can never get to trial and they won't pay you what's fair, I mean... Some clients and some clients that can't afford to wait. That's the other problem.
2: Right. And I think insurance companies have a different evaluation. They've got a pot of money that they're using to pay for attorney costs. And then they've got a pot of money that they've got to pay for the value of the case. And so, you know, it's a lot more uh, painful for the plaintiff's bar than it is for the defense bar, insurance bars, as far as I can see it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because the insurance part, I mean, the insurance companies are paying out so much less in settlements on big cases because they're just not going. They could afford to pay more in defense costs.
2: Right. And I think it's, you know, it's easy for us to say. And I mean, I'm blessed every day to, to think through the fact that, you know, we don't have to settle our cases cheap. We can hold firm. We can continue pushing our cases and, um, you know, but. Frankly, there are a lot of lawyers out there probably listening to this podcast who have to think twice about the settlement offers based on the realities of not getting the trial date in the next, you know, nine months or so. Well, Longer.
0: honestly, 10 years ago, I would have to be thinking a lot differently. I mean, it's been a lot of, you know, the, the fact that we've deferred gratification and, and invested money instead of spending it on fun things sometimes so that we could have that, that footing to, to be able to hold out when times are tough.
2: So one of the good things, though, that I think we should talk about are um, is during times like this, what can people do to still maximize the value of their cases during a pandemic? Like what can we as the plaintiff's bar continue to do to still um, hold insurance companies feet to the fire and not settle cheap and continue to push our cases further? Um, what they're worth and maximizing the value of every single case. And, um, you know, I have to confess that for some inspiration during these tough times, I've had to go back and reread some old books on my bookshelf and hundred year old um, strategy books. And so one of the books I pulled off the bookshelf recently was uh, The Art of War, Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And, you know, when I read it the first time, it, immediately gave me uh, a lot of guidance and inspiration for how to work up my cases, how to settle my cases for the maximum value. But going back and revisiting it now during a pandemic, I felt the same, the same way. Um, renewed energy on how you can continue to work up your cases and uh, be creative in developing new cases even during a pandemic if you can't get a trial setting. In most jurisdictions, you could still get hearings On motions to compel you can still get hearings on motions for summary judgment you can still push for discovery um and so you know what types of creative things can we do as lawyers even though we don't have uh, a trial setting you know you know going back to a hundred couple hundred year old uh, book on uh, war strategies has kind of been an inspiration for me
0: and yeah i'm I'm actually looking forward to hearing this because i've you know, just the way we've set up the firm, I tend to only work on the ones that are getting ready for trial, uh, or that might go to trial, uh, on it when, you know, as far as a deep dive, day to day working. Uh, and then you've had some really good success. And, uh, I personally thank you for it because it's helped, helped us this year on getting good money on cases, even in, in jurisdictions where they already told us you're not going to trial on any case in the next, you know, eight to 10 months.
2: Well, you know, the irony, Michael, is that I've been practicing law for almost 25 years now, and I've never made more money in one year period than I have during this pandemic. Wow. So what the heck is going on? Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know what is going on, except that I have kind of gone back to the well when it comes to um, rereading The Art of War and kind of... Using that as a touchstone for developing my cases and working up my cases and keeping um, absolute pressure on the defense um, when it comes to working up my cases.
0: So, what are some of the things you've learned from the art of war that have uh, been applicable to your practice?
2: So, the primary theme that I keep, you know, at the forefront of my negotiation strategy and my um, case preparation is that um, it's in Chapter 3 of the Art of War, and Sun Tsun says that supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. Hmm. And so if you use the analogy of fighting as a trial, so supreme excellence consists of breaking the enemy's resistance without a trial, it's highly relevant today, where we don't have trials at our disposal. Right. So what do you do to break the enemy's resistance when you don't have the luxury of trial? And so sometimes the art of war has a philosophy that's very similar to um, modern day war strategy, which is if you want peace, prepare for war. And so... Uh, What I'm doing in all of my cases right now, despite the pandemic, is pushing and preparing as if I am going to trial um, at a moment's notice. And that means hiring all the experts I need to hire, preparing all the experts that we need to hire, um, paying for the exhibits that we need to prepare for, um, and literally following the templates that are laid out in the art of war as if I'm preparing for trial. And so some of them are like the first chapter in the art of war is laying plans. So when you're laying plans for a war, part of it is strategizing um, your strengths and your weaknesses and um, investing your money where you need to. And a huge part of getting ready for war is knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are. And I don't want our listeners to think that somehow we're blessed by having all the perfect cases.
3: I you know, wish, <laughs>
2: and that not one of our clients has pre-existing medical conditions that they didn't tell us about, or that there isn't some YouTube video or Facebook <laughs> video of them doing something ridiculous when they shouldn't have. Um, because if you're any type of a trial where you've got those cases. Everybody has those cases, and. Um, The reality is the best lawyers still have those cases, but they know those issues exist and they can um, still strategize and uh, evaluate their cases based on knowing those weaknesses. So and that's another big um, chapter in the art of war, which is knowing your strengths and knowing your weaknesses.
0: So how do we find out our weaknesses in our cases so that we can find a strategy to overcome them?
2: So for some people, I think weak points and strong can be assessed by intuition and just listening to your gut. You know, when you walked into a, a meeting with a client and they're just something that doesn't sound right, it's intuitive and you kind of. You know, I think more often than not, as as lawyers, we want to kind of ignore that and say, well, I don't want to be judgmental. You know, maybe they're having the client is having a bad day. Maybe they're not very sophisticated. So they misspoke. Um, I think as lawyers, we need to listen to our intuition. If something doesn't sound right, um, it's probably not right. Doesn't mean that the client is lying. Doesn't mean that they're frauds. Doesn't mean they're trying to pull a sham. But uh, it definitely is something that we as uh tacticians need to review and evaluate and research doesn't mean that we drag the client into the office and beat them over, you know, the woodshed and and make them feel bad about not knowing an answer to a question, but it's something that we need to evaluate on our
3: own.
0: I I agree. And if we get that feeling, you know, the jury's probably get the feeling the the defense will definitely almost always get the feeling, uh, That there's something there and they'll go dig more. Uh, I do. I am finding more and more. You know, we used to spend so much time fighting the other side's requests to get our clients past medical. And we still do. Uh, But more and more, I'm trying to get us to get everything the defense would ever wish to get for us to get it up front. Uh, Because if our client let's get let's say we get our clients five years of medical records. We go to their health insurance company and get their claim records, so we know every doctor they've seen in the last five years for sure. We know every medication they've taken for the last five years, and we look at: Are there any pain meds? Are there any anti-inflammatories? Do they, you know, do they have complaints back pain or not? If they don't, why wouldn't we want to put those records in evidence? So the defense is saying everything's pre-existing. Well, here's five years of medical. He didn't complain, or she didn't complain once of back pain before this crash. So how is this pre-existing? Uh, and if there is something there, they're going to get it sooner or later. Not, maybe if it's far enough back, we can get a strategy. But if it's some, you know, they had back pain 10 years before and didn't have back pain in between, even if the defense did get it, it doesn't really hurt us that much. I think it makes the defense actually look deceptive and bad. Like, oh, you had a backache 10 years ago. Yeah, but I went nine years without any problems until you ran into me. you know. But it, But if they did have some problems before and we know about them, then we can go and say, hey, look, client, you know, Here's the deal. You had some back pain before you have back pain afterwards. What's the difference? How did it change? And before your client goes up for a depot, because a lot of times the clients, they just think they're not supposed to tell us. They think it's going to hurt their case. And when we get, when we realize, get them to realize, look, you're going to win with the truth. If you tell, like, we all have some back pain every now and then. We all have a headache every now and then. Maybe you said, yeah, I had some minor back pain. I could live with it. I never missed any work. You know, once every six months I'd go to the doctor, but most of the time I didn't need to. But then, once this crash happened, it put me over the edge. I couldn't work. I could barely walk. Well, now we've got a story, and now we can find the other people in your life to tell that story. But if instead our client goes in there and says, "No, I didn't really have any problems before," and then they get those records, we're dead. So you know, just doing that intuition, but also doing that digging on our own first, really makes a difference. It's a pain in the butt. You know, you've got to spend time and money digging for things that aren't, you know, in our at first glance directly relevant. But I think it really and. and can become very powerful because the case I'm supposed to try, I was supposed to try next week, you know, he had two really bad wrecks five years before this wreck. But when we got all the medical records together, we got all his past tax records together, it was a really, really clear picture of, he was really hurt for about a year and a half. Then he got better. He had uh, one or two flare ups, but had gone two years without seeing a doctor, was working fine. We got a supervisor, we got a, a friend, talk about how great he was doing before. And then this put him over the edge. Uh, And so now we got a great story to tell. But if our story was he was doing just fine before that story wouldn't be credible because they'd make him look like a liar.
2: I think you're right. And I think that when you are first meeting your clients and you're talking to them from day one, they need to understand that we are coming with the truth and for us to truly come with the truth, you know, as their lawyer, I need to know the good, the bad and the ugly. And, um, you know, Even when I talk to my clients on day one about the good, the bad, and the ugly and needing to know everything, you never get the full information. You know, I I have a firm belief that your case never looks as good as it does on the very first day that you meet your client. Because after that, there's things that happen and that you learn that aren't as great. But when you meet with the client on day one, if the foundation is we will come with the truth and... Again, listening to your intuition about, you know, any prior car wrecks and that, yes, but I wasn't hurt that bad. Like, okay, some lawyers will say, well, they weren't hurt that bad. No red flags go up. Immediately your red flags should go up. Yeah. Um, And that's when you start asking about, well, who'd you see? And did you have to go to the emergency room? And it's not a situation where you're gonna freak anybody out at that point. It's not, you know, uh, Alarming, but you immediately walk out at that point and let your staff know hey, we've got some medical records we need to order now from some general hospital on, you know, in that jurisdiction where the crash happened. And it's better to know in advance, like you said, preparing your client for a deposition based on what we already know the truth to be is a hell of a lot easier than trying to uh, repair testimony based on what the client's memory is, you know, two or three years after something happened.
0: Or even worse, like I said, the client may have had friends, family members, you know, someone else that works at a law office somewhere. Tell them, oh, don't don't say this, or they're gonna they're gonna use it against you. And you know, they think they're helping their case, and they're really taking it. You know, I kind of think of the initial client meeting kind of like a first date. Everyone's trying to put on their best face. You know, you haven't earned that trust yet. You tell them I want the good, bad, and ugly, but they're thinking, but if I tell you the ugly, you're gonna reject me. Right. And the fact is, you do have to keep that in mind that if it's ugly enough. You know, this might not be a case you want to put a bunch of your time and effort into, and that, you know, I, I've had cases where the medical condition before looked exactly like the medical condition afterwards, and it's like I can't do anything for you. Right. Uh, but you need to, but you need to find that out. But you can't. You don't. You don't earn that much trust on a first visit. You have to spend time and bring it up over and over again. But I think the big thing is, you know, for the clients that have health insurance just, and not only do, but just get those health insurance records and find out what doctors they have been doing and get those records.
2: Well, the prescription records are always so telling. Absolutely. I mean, that's just an easy way to take a snapshot of what they were complaining of. If They were getting medication for it, and that's just an easy, you know, uh, request with an authorization that doesn't have
3: to be proved up or anything.
0: Yeah, no, you don't need to, you know, and just because you have them doesn't mean you you know if they're not relevant you don't necessarily have to produce them right i mean if you had like i said if you find out they had back pain once 10 years before i mean you can't lie to the defense and say it's not there I mean you can say you know objection relevance you know and uh, we'll, you, we'll give you five years worth of records
2: as a baby lawyer michael i was terrified to get records because i believed that if i had them i had to produce them and that's just a misconception it's just you know naive of you to think that but, um, you know, you have to do your due diligence and know what's out yeah. there. And then you as an attorney can evaluate whether or not that's actually responsive to any requests. And you can make the proper objections that you need to do so not produce them if you don't have to. Yeah,
0: but sometimes, but, to. and I want to make it clear, we're not saying you withhold damaging relevant information. Right. Uh, you have to, you have to, I mean, if the day before your client was complaining of back pain, oh. you're going to have to produce that. But, you know, if it's 10 years before and it didn't continue, you can't lie and say it's not there, but you can put an objection saying objection. This is over broad. We'll give you a year. Or we'll give you five years, and then see what the judge does. So the judge makes you give ten. You give ten, and let them argue. Who cares? So they trust the jury. They want to argue. Well, your back hurt once ten years ago. Therefore, we couldn't have hurt you. You're like, come on. You know that as long as you're not scared, you don't hide it and lie about it. That that argument really isn't a very good argument from the defense. Yeah.
1: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I Cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show.
2: The other thing that I've found um, that is um, a good touchstone for evaluating a case and settlement value and negotiation strategy is remembering Torts 101. You know, negligence is two parts, liability and damages. And sometimes I think it's easy to fall into this rut of evaluating the value of your case based on your client's damage model. I've done that before. And I think my case is worth what my damage model looks like. And that's not true. Um, If you look at your case really carefully and you recalibrate your value, um, plus or minus, based on some liability factors, and you believe it, and you go to battle, fairly evaluating both components, liability and damages, I think that um, it totally adds value to the case.
0: Yeah, liability drives damages. If the defense did something really bad, you're more likely to get a bigger recovery. And same for damages drive liability. I mean, if you have a a weak liability theory and a small injury, you're going to lose. If, if you have a weak liability and a death or a quadriplegic, the jury might think, yeah, that's a really bad consequence. You shouldn't have done that.
2: Well, you know, it's been interesting the last, you know, 18 months of uh, negotiating cases and uh, working with mediators, unfortunately, by Zoom most of the time. You know, mediators want to talk to plaintiffs lawyers about the low property damage or the pre-existing conditions. And to quote an old friend, in uh, Napa. I spit on that. I don't want to talk about those things. I don't want to talk about the low property damage or, you know, the pre-existing issues. I want to talk about how this is a dirty trucking company and how they have no training protocols and how they have had crashes in multiple vehicles over the last two years. And how the crashes are all consistently the same types of crashes because they are not training their their personnel. And so, what I've started asking the mediator all the time is, how come we can't talk about the things I want to talk about? Yeah. And the mediator has scratched you know more often than not a guy, but they scratch their heads. They scratch their heads and say, well, they don't want to talk about that. And I'm like, well, I don't want to talk about the low property damage. So what are you going to do as a mediator? Why you know what's the what's the um, What's the middle ground?
0: Yeah, but the mediators that have worked a lot with me have learned, I don't hear anything but their number because everything else is bullshit.
2: Well, at that point, <laughs> that's when you stop. That's when you stop the back and forth about the new yeah. picky things that, are, that they perceive yeah. as problems in your case. And you say, I don't want to talk about... Low property damage or pre existing issues. What you say is if they want to talk about the low property da- damage and pre existing issues, then I want to talk about their bad training
0: history. Also so that's why it's a million dollar case, not a $2 million case. Exactly. But it's not a $50,000 case. Exactly.
2: <laughs> and so um, it's just changing the, the framework of the conversation. When you remember going back towards 101, you know, it's two components to the case. And we forget that sometimes because we're uh, forced by insurance companies to always assess a damage model, but we've got to remember that your damage model goes up and it goes down based on significant liability factors.
0: Yeah. The fact is no one really knows what a case is worth. There is no magic formula, a a case ultimately a case is worth what a jury would do on it. But that really has a lot to do with what we decide it's worth. When, if we in our heart of hearts believe it's worth more, uh, we can get more. And it's crazy that it, it gets infectious. Like, People tell you, like, that case is not worth that much money. That case is not worth that much money. And when you believe it, then the defense floor is like, well, what am I missing? And they start getting scared. I um, had
2: this uh, great mediation with a, an excellent mediator in South Texas last week, week before last. And uh, he was shocked that I was able to get um, the defense um, energy company to pay way more than they should have on this case. And he said, what do you think? How were you able to, you know, how did you do that? And I said, you know, I think it's because I'm going to be 50 next month. And I've decided that a case is worth what I say it's
3: worth. Exactly.
2: (laughs) And I said, and if you disagree with me, let's just go try it. But the case is worth what I say it's worth. And there's a liberation that comes with just knowing that you're going to hold your ground and stand your ground. And so um, now... That, again, is a luxury because I know we have a lot of listeners out there who have small cases or they have cases with warts on them like we all do. And you've got to settle those cases, you know, um, at all costs. The difference is if you read The Art of War, you know, you never, never, ever let your opponent know your weaknesses. And you have to come from a position of strength always. Um, You know, there's a chapter in the book that is called the attack by fire and so you are constantly attacking by fire what do you mean and so that just means coming from a position of strength and so if you have a really strong liability case you're constantly taking the liability witnesses and the corporate rep depot or you take the supervisor the safety manager or the co-workers who are also going to say that they weren't properly trained and so you never let up on the positions of strength that you have and so um you've got to attack by fire Um, even if you have other weaknesses in the case, you can't
3: ever reveal those.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that can give settlement pressure when you don't have a trial is if you have a corporate defendant, I mean this doesn't really work with the regular better cases, but when you have a corporate defendant that's gonna be a replete player and then also has, you know, reputational capital in the marketplace, they, they want to be seen as a good company. The more dirt you dig on them, the bigger the fear in the company level is, you know, I don't want all this coming out. I don't want a newspaper article after a verdict talking about how bad our company is. You know, I don't know that I want to mandate Mrs. Judge's ruling and have a reported decision where all these facts that have come out in discovery so far get put into the record for people to read that are then going to be used against in other cases because people say, hey, Sonia and Michael got all this great stuff. Let me go call them and get a copy of it because they know that we'll share it freely. Um, And I think that really starts putting pressure on and it it creates, you know, you always want conflict in the other room. Uh, you, You want conflict between the defense lawyer, the insurance company and the insured. And the more havoc you can create, the more that the insurance company just wants to get out of there and and pay to go away. And so if you can start getting that company to tell the insurance company, I don't want to get dug into anymore. I don't want to put up another employee for deposition. I don't want to produce these documents. You get rid of this case. Uh, It puts a lot of pressure on it.
2: That's exactly right. And I think that um, one of the fun ways to um, strategize a case for me is to find out who my pressure point is going to be every case has a person who, if you make that one person squirm, is going to capitulate and say, this is too uncomfortable, get rid of it for whatever reason. And I had a case recently where uh, an energy company hired a guy with a terrible driving record to drive a company vehicle and they issued him a company cell phone and didn't provide him any training on how to um, drive safely over the road um, with a company vehicle and a company phone and didn't give him any instruction on distracted training or anything like that. Well, come to find out that the guy was hired by a vice president of the company because he was a family friend. Ah. And so very quickly, the vice president of the company becomes my pressure point, right? Because does he want everybody in the company to know the favor he did for the family friend? Probably not. So you just, you know, you, but you, it takes a some level of discovery. You've got to do some discovery and digging and taking some depositions to find out how'd you get hired? Who, you know, how'd you find out about this job and who looked the other way when it came to the hiring processes. But every case has a person who, you know, has that squirm factor that you can
0: kind of put pressure on. Yeah, and sometimes you hear it, you know, between the lines of what the defense lawyer is telling us too. I mean, we have a case against SpaceX right now where not a rocket crash or anything, one of their employees caused a crash. And, you know, one of the first things that, we phone calls I got, you know, my name wasn't even on the pleadings, but the defense lawyer knew me. Like, hey, Mike, uh, SpaceX will agree to identify the employee, but they don't like their name on lawsuits. Can you can you take the name off the lawsuit if we agree that they'll pay the SpaceX will pay any judgment and just through the employee? I'm like, hell no. Yeah, <laughs> but now I know, like <laughs> one of the things that Elon Musk doesn't want is a judgment against SpaceX. Right. And so it's like, well, then, Elon, you guys got billions of dollars. You don't know if you- yeah.
2: This isn't going to It's
0: only going to take a few million to take care of us. So.
2: Right. But I, I think that that um, goes back to the whole issue of your intuition and listening to what, you know, you've got to pay attention to what people are telling you. Um, and the reality is most of the time we don't have the luxury of being able to personally speak to our clients all the time. And that means listening to what our staff is telling us they hear. Yeah. Trusting your staff to to um, warn you and listening to your staff when they warn you that they get a bad feeling about this. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, I was a legal secretary before I went to law school. And my mom was a paralegal for 25 years when I was a kid. And so, you know, I know firsthand all of the hard work that our staff does to help develop our cases. And if you're not listening to your staff and really inviting them into the deliberation of, you know, case value and strengths and weaknesses in your case, nobody knows more about the words in your case than the people who are talking to your clients
3: regularly, and that's your staff.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, if they think the client's a problem, client. a jury's probably not going to like the client as much as you think. I mean, unless you have the wrong staff member. But usually if it's someone that gets along with 90% of your clients and then there's an issue with this one, you know, again, listen to gut. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't have the case, but listen to your gut on it. Uh, going back to putting pressure, one thing I've really noticed lately is, you know, sometimes you get that lawyer that's just really mean and nasty and racist voice and files threatening motions. I'm realizing the more of that I get, that means I'm doing the right thing. It means that 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 always comes from fear. Actually, even raising voice, losing temper, comes from fear.
2: So it's funny that you say that because going back to the art of war in chapter nine, the army on the march talks about assessing strategy based on the actions of your opponent. And one of the things that Sun Tzu says is that if there is disturbance in the camp, the general's authority is weak. And he talks about how you can evaluate your opponent's strengths and weaknesses based on their actions. And I totally agree with you that if you see uh, a ton of aggression and uh, frenetic activity on the part of the defense sometimes, uh, it's a sign of... Uh, discord or weakness and um,
3: an opportunity for you to sweep in and take advantage
0: of that especially they can't stand it when you re- when you respond with calm and you don't rise to it and it's not easy but you know when they when they go try to insult you they go try to threaten you and you're like well you'd like to follow up most of you? just go right ahead uh, you know and, and you don't get upset it drives them nuts because you know they're they're scared so they're trying to scare you and they're trying to intimidate you uh and There's just nothing like that calm, quiet confidence, like, well, go ahead. Well, you know, well, I'm not going to pay you much money. Your worth isn't worth that much. Well, we'll go try it. I've won cases. I've lost cases. I've always survived. You know, let's go try it. And it just, it it drives them nuts.
2: Well, you know, Sun Sun says violent language and driving forward as if to attack are signs that he will retreat. So, I mean, there's something to your intuition and, and... to your um, trial strategies
0: because I think that that's, you know, true. Well, to be fair, that's not intuition. That's not something, that's not where I started. I started by fighting back. <laughs> <Tyler>. <laughs> I thought I started by going back even louder and more aggressive. And and part of that was out of fear. And part of that is just I grew up in a house where we yelled at each other. Uh, uh, but I've learned and done a lot of work to get there that if I can just not let the other side get to me, I just, I'm not going to give them the power over. I'm not going to let... Some jerkwad insurance adjuster or defense lawyer get to decide how I feel or how I react to something. I take that power away from them. Uh, and one thing that I've had to do, I don't know, if it's, it's more of a Buddhist concept. I don't know if Sun Tzu talks about it or not because I, I think that's a different school. But it's not that you don't care about the result, but your work is, and your self-worth is detached from the result. So I think I'm a great trial lawyer and I think I do great work. Does that mean I'm going to win every case? No. I have no control. And one thing I've learned is like the case I have next week that I was supposed to try. I believe 100% it's their fault. I believe 100% my client didn't do anything wrong. I believe 100% my client was not hurt that bad and he got hurt and his life was ruined because of this. And I believe that with all my heart. But I also know I wasn't there. I didn't know him before this happened. So the only prayer I can have is the justice be done. I should be praying that I win whether it's just or not. Right. Uh, and so You know, And I know I can't control that. I can't control how a jury is going to take something. I can't control what rulings a judge is going to make. What I can control is my effort.
1: Enjoying the episode? Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go.
2: Well, I do think, you know, now having practiced law with you for a few years, I can tell you that that has been such a liberating um, outlook to, tr- to aspire to because you know, I am obsessed with winning and not losing. And when you obsess about not ever losing, um, taking risks is a lot harder. And when you lose, you take that loss a lot harder. Um, So, you know, having the opportunity to practice with you and looking at the outlook, like you gave me a really good analogy early on. You said, look, did you ever play football, Sonia? And I said, no.
0: I got this from Randy to <laughs> get I didn't
2: think of myself. He said, he said, have you ever played football? And I said, no. Um, you know, I weigh 110 pounds. <laughs> I've never played football. Um, but you said, you know, when you play football, even when you've tried your best and you worked your hardest and you've prepared your absolute best, you still lose sometimes. And so... Um, you know, that kind of approach and attitude to the practice of law was very liberating for me, and it makes the practice a lot more fun now. But I, I have concluded, Michael, that sometimes if you don't have the right mindset, that can also be a crutch because it's easy to say, well, the judge is going to rule how the judge is going to rule, irrespective of what I do. No,
0: that's that's totally different. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying at all.
2: Because you still have to absolutely leave everything on the field, absolutely yes. have to prepare. Only when you absolutely have prepared, you know you've done everything right, can you breathe and exhale and yeah. say, what's going to happen is going to happen.
0: What, it, what the mindset is, is it's my job. I got this from sorry, on my, my job is to fight. My job is to have the best possible trial I can give and do everything and, and best possible settlement negotiation, best possible work on whatever it is. My job is to obsessively work hard and, and give it the best I can give. My job's not to control the outcome. Although I want to win every case. Don't get me wrong. I want to get millions and millions of dollars on every single case. Uh, doesn't happen, but I, that's what I would like. Uh, and I do you see. I work hard uh, and I do care and I care about my clients and I, and I do want to win. But I don't let detachment makes me when you go in scared of losing it affects you, yeah. And so when I talk to Jerry, it's like, "Hey, that's your job. I trust you to do your job, but it's your job to decide whether I want or not. It's my job to sit here and give you the tools you need to do the right thing." And when you when you change your mindset there, and then have you been around me when I've lost a trial? I don't know if I've lost one since you've come in. You know, no, you haven't <laughs> lost one in the last I've been, three I, years. Yeah, well, <laughs> it will happen sooner. I hope. The, I hope no time soon. Uh, you know, I, I I am not happy. When I lose a trial, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not going to say I'm so zen that I don't second guess myself. I'm not happy, but I don't, I give it about 24 hours to more. And even when I won a trial, I mean, uh, the last jury trial I won and it was the biggest verdict I ever had. I wasn't happy. I thought it should have been more. I don't know. It just, uh, I thought it should have been more. I thought the guy's still freaking dead. Uh, you know, it's great that we got a verdict, you know, we said something really good for the widow that you know letting the world and the community say your husband had value you have value was really important to her uh but it felt very incomplete i'll be honest but because that's not you know uh but i let it go whatever it is i feel it and you have to let yourself feel it if you, if you suppress it and you go but i i feel it i go home i usually have a nice bottle of red wine that's my thing that's and uh I don't drink it all by myself anymore, but (laughs) I at least have a few glasses of it. And and I let go and then it's it's gone. Bye.
2: Well, you and I had a conversation about letting things go um, a couple years ago that really was just a couple minutes long, but it has changed my outlook on, um, you know, winning and losing. And it was a big hearing that we had and we hadn't yet gotten the ruling from the judge. uh, But I was wringing my hands over the judge's impending right. decision and you asked me you said sonia um did you pull all the cases and do the best briefing you absolutely could and i said i pulled every single case that is possibly out there i briefed it perfectly and he said if the judge makes the wrong decision that's the judge's fault not yours yep and it was so liberating because i'd never really uh, looked at the practice from that perspective i would always looked at it from my ability to make change or my ability to convince but there are things that are the judge's responsibility yeah. and the yeah. jury's responsibility that i don't have control over i can only control what i can do and that's the best briefing that i can or the best argument that i can the best advocacy that I can.
0: and when we when we put responsibility on ourselves for things we cannot control we're gonna have a very unhealthy life that's true we're gonna have a miserable life we're gonna either we're, we're not going to take chances we should take because I mean, sometimes the right thing to do is to go to trial when you don't have a guaranteed win, because the, you know, the offer is not going to make a major change in your client's life. You And yeah, that you might win, you might lose, but the right thing for the client, what the client wants to do is to go in there and roll the dice. You need to be able to do that. Uh, and, and you, you know, you don't want to be one of these people that's fearful, that's miserable, that's bitter, that's drinking it, drinking the feelings away. You have to be able to let it go.
2: So we had talked about coming into the recording today, talking about some of the mental health issues that come um, with stopping and starting trials. And so I don't know if we want to just keep talking or we want to do it on another day. But
0: well, I think what's going to that too. I think one of the hardest things for me, and, and again, the the letting go, and and it's so it's so much work for me. That's one of the big goals in my life is to try to perform at an excellent level but then let go of the responsibility for the results. So like my job was to get ready for that trial next week. Now the court system chose that decided it was not safe to have a trial next week. And I'm going to say, okay, I'm disappointed, but I respect that. I don't think the judge was doing that as a, because they didn't want like us so they don't want us to get justice. It's like, they don't think it's safe to go to trial. I respect you, judge. I'll be, I'll be even more ready next time. Uh, And you know, when I've, like I said, I've, I, having tried about 100, I don't know, I've lost kind of like 120, 125 cases. I've not only won more trials than most people have tried. I've lost more trials <laughs> than most people have tried. And I've survived. And there's something liberating. The first time I put $100,000 into a case, I lost a trial. Within a week, it was very liberating because I was still in business. I had, I didn't die. I didn't lose my house. I didn't lose my practice. People didn't stop sending me work because everyone said, Man, you're a brave guy to try that case. That case really sucked. Why, you know, I don't know even why you took it. Nobody you know?
2: boiled you up and ate you.
0: No, no one, no one like put a dunce cap on me or called me a loser or, you know. And so, you know, and, and you live and you learn and you go on the next one. And, and when you're willing to go in there and risk it, then you're more likely to win. Uh, and then people are more likely to pay you uh, and to not go down there because they're scared that they're going to lose that one.
2: I think a lot of it too, though, um, requires some level of discipline and commitment to keeping some kind of a healthy outlook on life, healthy lifestyle. Um, You know, I can't say that I work out or exercise at the level that I would like to, but um, you know, I'm trying to meditate now. So mm-hmm. there is a component of peace in your universe that you kind of have to find if you're going to work in this practice of stopping and starting and not having control over where you're whether you're going to go to trial when you've invested a ton of time, energy, and money in, in proceeding only to have it pulled out from under you. I mean, it's disappointing. It's frustrating. It's, you know,
3: yeah.
2: it's easy to get down and so, unless you have some kind of an outlet for yourself, um,
3: I can imagine that it, it can
2: beat
0: you down. And you do have to be compassionate with yourself. Like on one hand, like I said, you can't let it eat you up. But you also, when you feel something, you have to let yourself feel it so that you can let it go. If you don't, if you pretend it's not, the whole thing of being of the non-detachment, you can't pretend it's not there. It's like, I really want to go to next week. And it really sucks that I can. And, you know, we did all this work and now we're going to have to redo a bunch of that. That stinks. You know, I've got it but at the same time, like I can't do anything about it. So I, I feel it. Same for my I lose case. I mean, I, I go in there, I second guess myself for a while. I feel really bad. I feel horrible for the client. Uh, but then I let it go. It's like, okay, I felt it. It's real. Now we let it go. You know, it was like soldiers at war. I mean, you go in there and they kill your buddy next door, next to you. And it's horrible. And But you can't quit. You have to keep going forward. Uh, or, you know, as athletes, I mean, you've got a whole season of games. You get your, you get absolutely destroyed one game where well, you can't let it get you down. You got to go in there and try to win the next one. So it's a, it's a crazy profession that we've chosen. Uh, it, it, it can eat you up. but can also be incredibly joyful. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, I really appreciate your approaches to creativity and finding ways to, you know, pressure people, uh, pressure the other side when we don't have our normal weapon of, of the trial to hit more the head with, and you know, going from everything from, you know, the most cutting edge, you know, Nick Rowley, whoever, <laughs> Lamott, to going back, you know, hundreds of years ago to Sun Tzu, uh, you know, whatever it takes. I, I mean, I, that's one of the things I enjoy about practicing with you is the creativity and open-mindedness. And, and I, and I have actually admired the, the growth I've seen in you and, uh, trying to struggle with not letting it eat you up and like, okay, you want to win every time, but realizing you're not going to win every, you don't win every single hearing on every single case and that that's okay.
2: Right. And I think that that's something that probably a lot of trial lawyers struggle with perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And, absolutely. Um, you know, I was talking to uh, a neuropsychologist that we use as an expert in cases. And she was telling me that um, across the board, most all of the lawyers that hire her and that she works with um, have the same diagnosis oh, yeah. of, you know, hyper anxiety disorder. You know, perfectionism. You know, she's like, you guys are all the same. You know, she y'all are all identical, and all of you need to go to therapy.
3: Well, we do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you know that that um, struggle with being perfect. Um, I think holds us down and holds us back and it's the really great lawyers who can learn to excel after they can let go of that that need
3: to be perfect and the
2: ability to fail we had early on you guys talked to me about uh, working with somebody who had you guys practice trial strategies in front of other people where you were embarrassed or you know not Perfect situations, but you were embarrassed, and and you were put in awkward situations. And you know, the idea was horrifying to me. (laughs) I mean, just the idea of being put on stage and and being asked to do something that would make me look um, silly—yeah—isn't something that I still think I'm ready to do. Yes, you are. (laughs) (laughs) But. You know, it just kind of highlights for me that there's still room for growth. You know, I've been practicing 25 years almost and there's still room to learn and improve. And that's one of the things that I love about the practice of law now is that, um, you know, we're constantly seeking to find areas to be better. And and sometimes being better means working up the cases and and representing our clients. But sometimes being better means, you know, uh, shoring up what we need to be successful. And that's your mental health and your outlook on your cases, your outlook on your practice, um, your business model. You know, everybody has a business model in their practice. And so that's a huge part of it.
0: Absolutely. And to all our listeners, you know, I hope that you all are taking care of yourselves. It is a still crazy time. I mean, we I thought things had gotten better in the summer and then they seem to go to hell again. And now maybe they're getting better again. Who knows? Uh You know, take care of yourself, Uh, be compassionate with yourself, continue to be creative, to grow. I hope we've shared a little bit that can help you in your practice. If there's anything else that, uh, you know, where we could help you, uh, anything you'd like answered, send us an email. We'd love to address it on a future episode. Uh, For those of you who do trucking and feel comfortable going to a public event, uh, I'm the education chair for the Academy of Truck and Attorneys. We're having our annual symposium in austin texas uh on september 23rd to 25th uh it will be available on video for those who can't attend but it's not going to get live streamed because a lot of the uh COVID numbers were looking really good when we planned it and then a lot of the different states for cle credit are really strict on live streaming and there's no way we could have met all their requirements but uh i would encourage anyone who feels safe to attend uh to attend uh like I said, but drop us a line if there's anything else you'd like to, like us to address. I hope you all are all safe and thriving and happy. So I uh, look forward to uh, having you all tune in again on the next episode of Trial Lord Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lord Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive plaintiff lawyer only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D E L I S I. At She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.